Welcome to Grace and Glory Audio, featuring Pastor P.G. Matthew, Bible teacher and pastor of Grace Valley Christian Center, located in Davis, California. Today, Pastor Matthew continues in the Bible series on the book of Joshua with part one of this message entitled, I and my family will serve the Lord. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Joshua chapter 24. Now here is our Bible teacher, Pastor P.G. Matthew. Help us to be loyal to your covenant. Help us to throw off all idols from our hearts. That may we serve the triune God alone with complete covenant fidelity. For we know that you are a jealous God and a holy God that you will not tolerate a pantheon of competing deities. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So today I want to speak to you from the last chapter of the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And I want to speak to you about the covenant-keeping families. Our culture has become completely destructive of families. Our courts destroy families. Our churches are destructive of families. Our government enact laws that destroy families. Our educational system destroys families. But God is for families, not in just an individual, but families. The promise is unto you and to your children. The aging Joshua, maybe around 110 years of age, the deputy general of Israel's army, called Israel for a last meeting at Shechem. He summoned them for the purpose of renewing the covenant of the Lord. Moses did the same thing before his death. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is a covenant renewing document. The Lord required his people to renew the covenant periodically. So chapter 24 of Joshua is seen by scholars in the light of the covenant structure that prevailed in the Hittite empires of the second millennium BC. There are, as you know, several elements to such treaty. They are called suzerainty treaty. Suzerain means an overlord, the great king. It's a treaty of a great king with his underlings called vassals. These treaties are not between equal parties. 
the great king is sovereign over the vassal and he alone is the author of the terms of the covenant. The vassal, the underling must fully accept the terms of the covenant and obey the Lord, the great king. There are many elements. First, of course, is the preamble. And what is the preamble? In the preamble, the Lord identifies himself by name. And second, there is a historical prologue. In this section, the Lord of the Covenant gives a historical review of his relationship with his vassal. Specifically, historical prologue states how the Lord helped the vassal and saved him in the past. It is a review of the Heil's Geschichte, the salvation history. And the third element called stipulations. This section sets forth the Lord's demand to love the Lord exclusively by obeying the terms. Fourth, blessings and curses. Obedience to the Lord, covenant obedience, will result in blessings, spiritual and material. Covenant disobedience will invariably and inevitably will result in curses of vassal. Then there is the witnesses to the covenant. Sometime Moses calls heaven and earth to witness. Other times in this chapter he sets up a stone as a witness. Then there is the requirement that this document be read periodically and publicly so that the people of God can hear and understand what the Lord requires. Then finally, it is to be deposited, the covenant document, in a holy place, generally in a temple. So that gives you some idea of the several elements of the covenant. So in the light of these elements, let us look at Joshua 24. And Joshua 24 is a highly condensed version of the Lord's covenant. And we see the preamble in verse 2, the first part of it. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. There is the identification of the Lord, of the great king. And you see the same in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Before the stipulations of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. That's the preamble. 
Then there is a very brief historical prologue. Who brought you out of Egypt? Out of the land of slavery. And take a look at verse 19 and 20 of Joshua 24. You will see the nature of this Lord of the covenant. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. And so on. God is holy and God is jealous. Just like a wife is jealous when a husband commits adultery. Or a husband is jealous when the wife commits adultery. God is jealous when we worship false gods, competing deities. And this jealousy will burn and will destroy. So this Lord of the preamble is the God of Israel. The Lord who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The I am. The unchanging eternal God. He doesn't age. He doesn't get weak. He's the Lord of grace. The Lord who is sovereign over all. He's the Lord who saves. This true God, the only God, is unlike the false gods of the nations. This God is moral. He's holy. He's different. See, people love idols because idols represent demons who are immoral. People love idols because idols permit you to sin. This is the simple reason that people worship false gods. They sit down to eat and rise up to play. That is to commit immorality. This is why the gospel is opposed because it speaks of a holy God who demands that we live a holy life. Very simple. The false gods are immoral and promotes immorality. Therefore, nations serve these false gods. But the Bible says the idols are lies. They are nothings. That's true. But behind every idol is Satan and demonic powers. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, where this truth is revealed that behind idol worship is demons and Satan. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, they sacrifice to demons which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your fathers did not fear. Or turn with me to 1 Corinthians, where St. Paul tells us about idol worship as demon worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 
beginning with verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. There you have it. All idolatry is demon worship. But the covenant Lord of Israel is different. And the Lord introduces himself in chapter 34 of Exodus in this way, beginning with verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the true God, a moral God, a holy God, an almighty God. Now let's look at the historical prologue, which we find, chapter 24, verse 2, the latter part of it, through verse 13. It is a review of Heil's Geschichte, the salvation history and you'll be surprised, even if you read in the English Bible, the word I appears 18 times. The Lord has taken initiative to save a wretched people. The Lord speaks in I, thou terms here. 18 times the first person pronoun I is used. In terms of the various saving deeds of the Lord, and this historical review goes back to Mesopotamia, where the father of Abraham lived, together with Abraham and others. To the Ur of the Chaldees, St. Stephen gives such a review in Acts chapter 7, where he tells us the God of glory appeared to Abraham. There is the God of glory, and there is the God of shame. All idols are gods of shame. The God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia when he was an idolater. God loved and chose him to be saved. Not when he was righteous, but when he was worshipping the moon god, Nana, N-A-N-N-A, or the god also called Sin, S-I-N. In fact, Abraham's father's name, Terah, means moon, moon god. So the point here is the Lord took initiative the Lord sought him, and the Lord saved him when he was an idolater, when he was unrighteous. The Lord led him out of Mesopotamia, 
The Lord led him into Canaan. The Lord gave him children. The Lord chose Isaac. The Lord chose Jacob. The Lord sent Jacob and his children to Egypt. Everything is the Lord's activity. Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to deliver them. The Lord afflicted the Egyptians. The Lord defeated all the Egyptian gods. The Lord brought Israel out. The Lord destroyed the Egyptians in the Red Sea. The Lord brought Israel through the Red Sea safely. The Lord defeated Amorite kings of Sihon and Og. The Lord defeated Balak by turning the curses of Balaam into one blessing after another. The Lord defeated all enemies of Israel. Ask the captain of the Lord's army. Turn to Joshua chapter 24 and and verse 12. And maybe remember this. You did not do it with your own sword or bow. Who did it? The Lord did it. And finally, the Lord gave them rest. Look at verse 13. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. You did not do it. He did it. So this historical prologue describes how the Lord took care of Israel for over half a millennium. He is the holy God. He is the sovereign Lord. When you read this, you understand that he rules and controls all. He defeats all his enemies. He saves his people. He defeats the gods of the Egyptians, the Amalekites and the Amorites. He alone is the Lord Almighty. To resist him is to court destruction. He chose Abraham, a pagan, to save him. He granted him faith to believe in this Lord. Even so, he chooses sinners to be saved. He makes those who are dead in sins alive in Christ. He does so by grace, not because of any merit on the part of sinners. Salvation is by grace through faith from beginning to end. Those who boast, let them boast in this Lord. Thus the historical prologue reveals how the Lord loved the vassals and saved them in the past. Even so, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her salvation. Now think about what the Lord did for you individually. Think of your election in Christ before the creation of the world. Think of your unbelieving parents. 
They didn't believe in God. Think of your birth. Born as sinner. Conceived in sin. God gave you existence. God led you every step of the way in your life. God gave you food and clothing. God gave you health and well-being. God preserved you. God protected you. God defeated your enemies along the way who wanted to destroy you and bury you. God gave you education. God gave you success in your job. God caused you to hear the gospel. And God regenerated you. He granted you the gift of repentance and saving faith. The Lord gave you a godly wife, a godly husband. This Lord gave you children that you may raise them to fear the Lord and serve him in this dark world. This Lord gave you a Bible for you to read and discover his will that you may delight to do it. This Lord will guide you to the end of your life and bring you to the very presence of God without fault in exceeding glory and joy. This morning, think of all the love the Lord lavished upon you. You didn't deserve any of it. But he did show great love and rich mercy upon us. May such personal review inspire you to love him and serve him. We love him because he first loved us. Now third, the stipulations. That is the divine demands upon the vassals. And you find that from verse 14 through 24. We read in this section that the people agreed with the historical review. People agreed that the Lord was good. The Lord helped them. The Lord saved them. They confessed that not idols, not false gods that saved them, but the Lord of the covenant saved them. Let me read it to you from verse 16. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery. Keep that in mind when you sin. Sinning is slavery. Destructive slavery. Deceitfulness of sin. It deceives you. And salvation is to be delivered from this slavery. His name is Jesus. He shall save you from your sins. And performed these great miracles before our eyes. He protected us in our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. 
we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. So we appreciate that response. The Lord saved them from slavery, from Egyptian slavery. This slavery points to the slavery to sin and Satan as described in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. A slavery that leads to everlasting shame and destruction. Every unbeliever is a slave to sin. He pretends to be free. He pretends to be having great party and and great joy. Let me tell you, he's a slave. God said so. The Bible said so. The Lord said so. An unbeliever is serving Satan and he is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. An unbeliever cannot save himself. The Lord saves sinners. So in view of this great love, the people responded three times. Three times saying, we will serve the Lord. And you read that in chapter 24, verse 18, again in verse 21, and again in verse 24. We will serve the Lord exclusively with covenant fidelity. If the Lord loved them, chose them, and saved them, then the divine demand is that the people so saved ought worship and serve the Lord only. Every Christian is an Obadiah. You know what Obadiah means? In servant of the Lord. That's what it means. The word serve, this exclusive serving of the Lord, that's the idea, appears 16 times in this chapter. Therefore, it is very important. Five times the word is used in terms of serving exclusively false gods. And 11 times the word is used to serve the Lord exclusively. Let me tell you one thing. Everyone is a servant. Either you serve demons or you serve the true and living God. That's the truth. That a Christian can continue to live in sin is a lie. It's a lie and you find in certain Bibles that lie. Not the text of the Bible, but the notes in the Bible. It's a lie. You have heard the lie. You receive Jesus into your heart as Savior. And then maybe one day you can put him on the throne of your heart. Have you ever seen that? You receive him first and put him in the attic. And you carry on your sinful life without any change. But maybe one day you can, notice it's you, you can put him where? On the throne of your heart. All these are lies. It has no truth in it. He is Lord of the covenant. He is Savior because he is Lord. So that a Christian can continue to live in sin is a lie. And if you are doing it this morning, I warn you, 
I warn you that you stop it. A Christian is to serve the Lord only who saved him from the destructive slavery to sin. St. Paul tells us we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which the Lord has prepared in advance for us to do. It is the pleasure of a Christian to please God. If you are born of God, it is your pleasure to please God. A good tree produces good fruit. A good tree was a bad tree, but God made it a good tree through regeneration. Those born of God, St. John tells us in 1 John, cannot habitually sin. If one is habitually sinning, he cannot be a Christian saved by the Lord Almighty. This divine stipulation is clearly stated in verse 14 and verse 15. Let me read it to you. Now fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems evil, that's the way the text says, not undesirable, evil to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. We have gods of plenty, whether gods of your forefathers saved beyond river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So let's take a look at this stipulation. It says, now fear the Lord. Now means in the light of what God has done for you by his personal initiative and power. He chose you from all eternity. He loved you and he called you effectually. He saved you. He led you step by step all your life. And brought you here this morning. Everything is because of the Lord's love and mercy and power. And covenant faithfulness. So notice it says now fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord keeps you from sinning. Sister, brother, if you are sinning. It is because you treat the covenant Lord with contempt. And your father with contempt. Your mother with contempt. Your preacher with contempt. The key to holy life is fear of the Lord. It is a holy reverence for God to whom all must give an account. It is a holy fear of the covenant Lord that leads to leads one to submit to the Lord's will and do them eagerly. See, the fear and love produces glad obedience. These are motivators. A son who reveres the father will be eager to please him 
by doing Father's will. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah. And we preached from this as we went through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11. This is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 2 and 3. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now we speak about the charismatic Christians. Swinging Christians. Heavy metal Christians. Well, let's understand what charismatic is all about from this verse. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. I suppose that means Jesus Christ was charismatic. Jesus Christ was spirit-filled, spirit-directed. What type of spirit? The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Spirit of counsel and of power, spirit of knowledge and of what? The fear of the Lord. And verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's a charismatic Christian. Who delights in the fear of the Lord. And is very anxious to do what is right. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. To pick up something about fear. If you are not fearing. And if you are sinning, listen to this, sister, brother, very carefully. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 31. This is what my mother used to tell me. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And turn to chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. The Lord Jesus Christ. He said it is my food. To do the will of God. And to finish it. It was his sheer pleasure. To do the will of God. And to finish it. In John 8 we are told. He always pleased the Lord. And in John 17 and verse 4, we are told, I have glorified you in that I have finished and completed the task you have given me. That's charismatic Christianity. Not heavy metal, hard rock, swinging, pretending that Holy Spirit is in your pocket, that the Holy Spirit promotes immorality no it has nothing to do with that charismatic Christian fears the Lord and does what is right in the sight of the Lord and finally the Lord Jesus said not my will but thine be done and he was crucified because that was the will of God God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten son. And he gave his life in obedience to the Father's will to save us. Secondly, we are told, serve the Lord with sincerity and truth. Serve the Lord, not based on changing feelings, but on the basis of objective, written, covenant document 
And we read about it in verse 25 and verse 26. The law. So if you are a vassal, if you are a true believer, then you say, the Lord commands it, and I do it with pleasure, because he loved me, he chose me, he saved me, he defeated my enemies, he provided for me everything that I need. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall lack nothing. Third, it says, throw away all idols. Don't come and tell me that you don't have any idols. The truth is we have. Look at this generation. I thought it was a pretty good generation that entered into Canaan. And generally speaking, they were good. But apparently they still had idols with them, false gods with them. And it was reported to Joshua, the deputy general, he calls for a meeting and says, this is bad. This is cancer. It will destroy you. Should be excised and thrown away. What's your idol this morning? Turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 35. This is what God was speaking to Jacob. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there. You know what? Bethel is the house of God. In other words, go up to Bethel and fellowship with me. And verse 2. See, Jacob understands, just like Joshua understood, Jacob understands that people cannot go to Bethel and have fellowship with God because they had plenty of idols. And you know the story in chapter 31, I believe, of Genesis that Rachel stole the household gods and she hid it. You see, if the Lord fails, there are idols with us. This is insurance purpose. So verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. The Holy Spirit is now speaking to you all the foreign gods you have. And the word is get rid of it. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God. Verse 4, so they gave Jacob what? All the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. And this meeting is now taking place at Shechem. After many, many centuries, Joshua is speaking at Shechem, the place Jacob buried idols. Let's turn to First King chapter 18. Remember the story of Elijah's confrontation with Balaam. And verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Christian life is not serving both the true God and false gods. It is not both and, but either or. He demands exclusive covenant love and obedience. How many of you wives will appreciate when your husband commits adultery? 
How many of your husbands will appreciate when your wife commits adultery? Even the unbelieving world will have certain anger within them. How much more the infinite holy God angry at people who try to serve God and Baal at the same time. It doesn't work. In the Hittite treaties, the vassal was to abandon and forsake all other alliances and to promise that he will serve the great king exclusively. So look at Joshua 24 and verse 13 again. Now then, and now 23, 24th chapter, verse 23. Now then said Joshua, throw away. Two times we are, throw away. Why two times? Because we don't like to throw away when it is spoken first time. We want to hold on to it. We are addicted to it. It gives us pleasure, but it is the pleasures of sin for a season. It deceives us. We need an operation. Excise it. Throw it away. Otherwise, it will kill you and will destroy you. Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter, the last verse in 1 John. Here is St. John is saying, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Throw away all foreign gods. Idolatry profits you nothing. And if you are an idol worshiper, you are stupid. And why is that? The Lord defeated all false gods. He is the sovereign Lord of all. And if that is true, to worship false god is stupid. Idolatry profits you nothing. The Lord has defeated all false gods. It is therefore stupid to serve gods of Egypt or Mesopotamia or Canaan or America. They can only deceive you and destroy you for they represent demonic powers. Think very honestly. And next we are told, choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. And the choice is between plenty of idols and the true God who loved us and gave himself for us on the cross for our salvation. Let me ask you, has the devil done anything good to you? Now tell me, what is the historical prologue of the devil? It is one destruction after another. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and what? Destroy. That's why I said it is stupid to live in sin. Think earnestly. Think seriously. Heavenly Father, I have delivered your word to your people whom you loved from before the foundation of the world to be saved. Perform miracles this morning. Perform surgery this morning. May your people gladly throw away idols and serve 
the covenant Lord with eagerness, with intelligence, with truth, with faithfulness, with great joy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Grace and Glory Audio, part one of this message entitled, I and my family will serve the Lord. Come back soon for more transforming Bible teaching from Pastor P.G. Matthew.